Hello and welcome back to the Irish Football Fans Podcast. I'm Joseph McCarthy of the Irish Abroad Football Statistics website and I'm delighted to welcome a special guest for this episode, Mark O'Brien, formerly of Derby, Motherwell, Luton, Southport and Newport County and currently working as a player welfare officer at Newport and uh, has recently published uh, a book about his time in football and his, the diagnosis that led to the premature uh, end to his career. Mark, it's it's great to have you on the show. Uh, how are you? Yeah, no, Grant, thanks. Not a body yourself. Oh, uh, all good here. Kick off. So, if we get started with uh, your move to Derby, you went over at fifteen. Normally, you know, you hear players going over at at sixteen, and now because of Brexit, it's it's eighteen. With uh, with Evan Ferguson being the, the probably the obvious exception to the rule, so. When you decided to join Derby, was there any other clubs in the picture? Yeah, so like obviously when I was playing in Ireland, like obviously you play like with your young DDSL teams and your your young Ireland squads and different things. Like I was getting I was getting a bit of interest from Blackburn. I got a bit of interest off Manchester City and Liverpool, and like I went over on trial to Blackburn a good few times, and I went over to Man City and Liverpool once. But I realised, like, with the likes of Man City and Liverpool, there was, like, a conveyor belt, basically, of players. And I just felt as though I wouldn't have much of an opportunity there. And I was probably a week from signing from Blackburn until Derby came in. And when Derby came in, I went over there. And the minute I kind of went into the setup, it was like a home from home. Like, my very first time going over there was I played with the under-14s. And then... I flew over on a Saturday morning. We played against Everton. I landed in Liverpool with my dad. And we went out. I played the game. Scored the winning goal and flew back that night. And then Derby straight away took a liking to me. And then they said we'd love him over for a week. And I thought, well, I enjoyed playing with the lads that were there. Like, I'd, I'd love to go over and see it. And then I went over for a week. And then that week alone just cemented it for me to kind of go. Like, it literally feels like a home for me. Like, it felt so comfortable. And... That was the bigger factor for me, and, I, and I'm sure for probably many Irish players, is that when something feels like a home from home, it makes moving away from home so much easier. And, and as I say, that, that, that was my first encounter of like moving away. That, Like I say, once, once I was at Derby that one time, I knew that was the place I wanted to go. Was there a big Irish contingent in the academy at Derby at the time? I know Jeff Hendrick and Ryan Connolly would have been there around the same time, but had they already joined the club? Ryan Connolly already joined the club. Um, there was Ryan Connolly, there was Graham Kelly, Paul Lawless, and Jeff Hendrick, and these were these were all lads that were all going over similar times to myself. So like I was obviously um, probably last one to be there. And when they all came in, and went uh, and known that there was Irish lads there, it made all the difference to me because, like you say, it's 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 one thing moving away from home at, at such a young age, but when you've got kind of your own Irish people around you just as just as much, and it, it it just it just felt right, and it just felt perfect. And and as you say, like I knew Jeff from the age of eight, nine, and ten, playing against him, and he was at St Kevin's, and I was at Cherry Orchard. So like we always we always like kind of knew each other. We we roomed together when I went with St Kevin's to the to the Foil Cup. So it is somebody that like it, it did make a difference with people like that being there and. As you say, once I went over there, there was no looking back for me. I know we're skipping ahead a little bit here, but 
You were called into the first team in May of 2009 for the last game of the season against Watford. I mean, you were still 16 at the eight at this time, and well, were the you had been announced as the Ireland Under 16 Player of the Year uh, just the previous February. You know, one of the youngest players ever to make a senior appearance for Derby. You know, it must have been like a, a, a dream for you at that stage. Yeah, like it, it was unbelievable to be honest. It was like, as you say, it was like a roller coaster because I moved over the previous summer at 15, and because I wasn't able to register there and then for Derby, I was kind of training with the under 18s but playing for the under 16s. And then when I turned 16 in that November, I was able to register as a Derby County player like full, fully and then I was able to play with the under 18s and then from that time all the way to the Christmas I was playing like um, under 18s football as a schoolboy technically and then a, a reserve game came came around I got put into that for five or ten minutes then another reserve game came and I got put into that for a couple of moments 20 minutes to a half an hour and Nigel Clough liked what he saw and by the end of that season like you say like I it was kind of like a an unbelievable year for me in football to go from getting the accolades and, and it was brilliant to get Ireland under 16 player of the year and academy player of the year and, and, and different things. But nothing compared to that like last week of the season to go from the, see, the, the year before playing at Cherry Orchard to then I was playing at Vicarage Road um, in front of 22,000 people. And like I say, it was um, an unbelievable year for me. And it was a year that I didn't really expect, but it kind of cemented to me, again, the reasoning for why I chose Derby, because I felt as though I was going to get opportunity, and I felt as though there was a chance to play, and I kind of proved that within, within the first year of being there. You know, I just mentioned that you're, you were the under-16 player of the year at the time, and uh, the current under-16 player of the year, uh, Matthew Moore, has just signed for Hoffenheim in Germany. So, you know, again, it's it's very young to be going... Uh, abroad, and I know there's that well-worn pact between Ireland and England um, that's been closed to to 16 and 17 year olds now. But you know, in your current role, uh, do you have to deal with you know players who might be dealing with that? You know, with their first time away from home and suddenly you know moving into a you know a professional environment that you know at the age where you're still basically a child. Yeah, like that, and and that's why I I think I enjoy doing what I do is is to the point of making a, a younger lad feel settled in a professional environment because they are going to make mistakes just like I did but it's kind of they have that support network this time of of telling them the do's and don'ts and telling them like what it takes and and like you say just kind of making them feel just as comfortable and make them feel part of it because I remember when I was 16 I got made feel part of a force team and um, I got made part of feel part of a professional environment and and feeling that bit settled brings out the best in in anybody's performance and like I say I've I've had that like we've we've even at Newport now we've had a 15 16 year old who has come up to the force team and like when he goes out and plays it's it doesn't phase him but you see off the field they look nervous they look a bit quiet and that's where I enjoy coming in is to the point of being that person that gives them that kind of connection of speaking to them and making sure they're okay and making sure that everything is going okay for them and then like you say not to let them get too carried away with themselves because young players nowadays can go from one extreme to the other where they can go from thinking they've made it from such a young age where there's so much more years ahead of them but also 
you let them enjoy the fact of, of doing so well in their career and you let them enjoy the fact of progressing and coming out of their shell naturally. And, and like you say, it, it's it's always very good to see. And it's not just, like I say, the role that I do is not just for younger players. It's for anybody. It's for any of the lads that might be feeling a certain way that, that are new to the building, that are new to the setup and different things. Of, and, and, and just being that kind of support that if all cards are down or if they get injured or whatever that I am somebody who's who's kind of been through the mill of a lot of different things that I try and shed a bit of light on it to kind of give them that little bit of hope to say, just don't give up on it. Because if you don't give up on it, there's plenty of opportunity there for you to come back bigger, fitter and stronger. You're, you're living proof of that, I think. So you've made your senior debut, the under-16 player of the year, been heavily involved with the first team in Derby County. And then just after a, a routine scan, uh, you get this diagnosis uh, about your heart valve. Before the diagnosis came through, had there ever been any indications that maybe something might not have been right? No, there was never anything. And that's why it was probably such a shock to me, my family and even Derby as a club, because <clears throat> I, I went from like playing all this the season previous with the academy, making me first team debut to then follow and then to finding out the following season that I had a leak in aortic valve and it was something that it was quite difficult at the time to, to get my head around because what I expected was coming back that summer, joining in in pre-season and then kind of kicking on and everybody seeing me as a prospect coming out of Derby and everybody having all eyes on me kind of situation. And then all of a sudden it just gets put to a halt because of a routine heart scan. So to an extent, I am quite lucky that I was involved with football because having that routine heart scan without any symptoms, without any telltale sign that there was something wrong with me, that if I didn't have that uh, routine heart scan, like to put it out bluntly, that I would have I would have died because they said to me that if I didn't have that operation that year, I was going to die. That's what the surgeon said to me when I, when I went and met with him because I had scans after scans and every single scan was getting progressively worse. And, the very first scan that I found it from was I don't need an operation for 60, 70 years. And then after that, I got another scan and then it went down to 20 or 30 years. And then I had another scan after that, which then led me to a surgeon that told me I'll have to have it within two weeks. And that in itself was, was very scary for somebody to walk in into an office with me, me mom, me dad and, and the physio. And he walked in and basically... He, he looked at me, he had a model heart in his hand and he turned around and said to me, Mark, if you don't get this operation done this year, you're going to die. And when someone says something like that to you, it's something that like you'll never forget. Like, I don't forget it for, for anything. And the fact that that was said, it kind of hit me for six. But being 16, I was able to turn around and, and look at it and say, can I still play football? And that's all I cared about. And that's why... I always say football was everything to me because I didn't understand the operation. I just felt as though it was an operation to get done, but can I get back playing football? And the doctor told me, like, I'd be lucky to play down in the park with my friends. He told me I'd probably never play again. And that was something that probably affected me so much more. That's something that really played on my mind and really hurt me to the point of thinking I could never play again. And especially after making my debut the season before. So, finding out about all that it was actually very very difficult because 
I wanted nothing more than just to kick on in my career and play. And the fact that I had a doctor telling me that it's probably already over before it even started, it really, it really, um, I really struggled with it. But again, I also looked at it in a way of saying, when the doctor said there was a slight chance that you might be able to play again, because you can't guarantee me the fitness, but if I have a pigskin valve, then I can I can give it a go. That could it could last me a year to a maximum of five years. And I thought to myself, well, I want to give it every last opportunity I can possible for that year or five years. That if the time came that after five years or after a year that it leaked again, well, do you know what? I can look back with no regret. At least saying I gave it gave it a chance. But what really like was playing on my mind was the fact of there wasn't a guarantee and I might never play again. But again, being 16, I was able to kind of just focus on the football and not worry about the operation because the football was, was the part of my life that I, that mattered more to me. Can I just ask you about the, the scan itself? Is this a, a standard practice across all academies? Like I know uh, Derby have one of the, uh, one of the highest rated academy setups in England. So like, Okay, you were lucky that you were a footballer and you got to have this scan, but were you also lucky in the sense that you were at Derby and with the facilities that they have? And say, if you joined, I uh, no disrespect, a lower league club who might not have had these facilities, would you still have had the same scan done? Um, as far as I'm aware, I would say, yeah, because I think it is a procedure that when you register a player and they go through a medical you have to have your routine heart scans. You have to have like your height and weight and all these different tests that go on for your medical. So it is something that I'm aware of. I don't, I think it's coming a lot more in the game now than it did back then. But even back then, like there was always a protocol that routine heart scans are something that you need to have. And if anything, it just goes to show that a routine heart scan saved me life because I didn't show any symptoms of what what I was supposed to feel, whether it was lightheadedness or tiredness or fatigue or palpitations in my chest, I didn't feel any of that. So the fact that this was picked up with no single symptom was kind of a alarming thing, but also a very good kind of example to show how much it actually matters that these scans are needed. Outside of football, you know, would you is it? Do you think that these types of uh, of scans are something that should be advised for like anyone that's involved in sport at the same age yeah well, look uh, and it is something that I've spoken about before and I do think it is something that like I think it's that fear of of not knowing and when you actually go for it it brings out some sort of fear in you that you think to yourself well do you know what there's nothing wrong with me I don't feel anything so why do I need to get checked whereas it's it's something that I probably heavily say that it's probably the best thing to have a clearer mind and understand and know that there's nothing wrong because there is always that chance that something could be wrong and that's not to say everybody is suffering but I am that example of saying that if I didn't have a routine heart scan then to to say it again bluntly I I wouldn't be here having this chat with you today. I know and that's a that's a scary thought and you know, it's a real roller coaster when you think that this all happened in less than uh, a year for you. You know, from from moving to Derby to, as I say, being winning under sixteen player of the year, making your debut, and then being told there's a chance that it's all going to end. 
you know, all within the same 12-month period. Yeah, and, and, and that's why I was probably more taken back by it because everything was going perfectly well. Everything went perfect if, if there is a perfect year to have that. You go from playing schoolboy in Ireland to then you go play for Derby County's force team the, 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 the year later and then you get told, right, it's all coming to an end or potentially all coming to an end. And it was just always to the point of all I ever focused on was when I got told there's a slight chance that I might be able to play again, I literally just held on to that slight chance and focused on that slight chance. And me having football to come back to and me having football is that distraction away from the recovery because it was it, it, it's, it's a really, really difficult recovery to come back from. And it's something that because I had football to focus on, when I had aches and pains and tiredness and all these things, all I knew my aim goal was football and I knew my aim goal was to get back playing. So it never really hindered me. Whereas later down the line, obviously at 27, like I struggled more mentally than I ever thought I would. Yeah, the, the cover, you've brought out the book recently, The Game of Two Hearts. And the cover uh, is quite striking because you have your, your scar uh, on display. Obviously, look, that's that's something you've had now for more than 10 years and it's it's something you're going to have for, for the rest of your life. But, you know, waking up after the operation, what was that like? I mean, how, how long, with the, I mean, obviously you don't remember much about the operation itself, but, you know, the day, you know, what was like, what was going through your mind in the waiting room or in the, uh, in the ward beforehand? And, you know, when you, how did you feel when you woke up? I, like I had two different feelings, one when I was 16 and one at 27. So when I was 16, um, like family were able to be in the in the hospital with me. So it wasn't too bad. Like I, I knew that I was having an operation that was going to save me life. I knew I was having an operation that was going to get me back playing football. That was my mindset when I was 16. So I was scared. Obviously, I was scared because even at 16, I was getting the thoughts of thinking I may never see my family again. Like I, I potentially could die. Uh, like all of these thoughts are going on in, in my head and I'm only 16. But what kind of made me, what, what made me overcome all of that was the fact of thinking I could play football again. Like football was life. And I know it sounds very kind of naive to say, but when I was 16, that's all it was for me. And, like when I was getting wheeled down the the next morning, like I was like woken up early. They give you tablets to make you drowsy, and I don't really remember getting wheeled in. I don't remember any of it. But waking up from from the operation, I remember I'm in intensive care, and my ma, my da, my auntie was over, and they were all in the in the um intensive care. And like I remember, like saying, like just basically waking up and just saying I'm alive, and that's all that mattered to me. And then all of a sudden, like you say, having family there was the was the best thing that could have happened because I was able to go out and do small walks with them. I was able to progressively get myself better every time. And they stuck by me and they were there every single day. And like you, you can never you can never really understand the power of what your families are unless you go through something that I've gone through and, and realize that they really gave me that little bit of hope that I've had 
when I when I when I was in the hospital on the recovery side of stuff, like I had moments where I broke down and cried. I had moments where I was thinking, why did this have to happen to me? Why couldn't this just not be me? Like why is it always me? And I I was really not like liking the fact and having like Jeff, Graham Kelly, Ryan Connolly, they all came to the to the hospital to visit me, which was brilliant. But again, that that nearly set me back a little bit because I'm looking at them thinking, why can't I just be standing there with you and we go into training together? And it really it really affected me. But again, it was the distraction of football to know what the end goal was. There wasn't a time where I ever had football not on my mind. And I think that's why at 16, I kind of handled it a lot better than I think anybody would. And then again... Like I say, 27 was totally different. It was the end of football. It was during COVID. There was no family allowed in the hospital. And I was a phone call away from everybody. So when I woke up in intensive care, I was by myself. I was a phone call. I was on the phone to my mum. And the first thing I said to her was, mum, I'm alive. Everything's okay. And that's all I cared about. And I knew the severity of everything at the age of 27. I understood what open heart surgery was. I understood the implications of everything, like the the tubes that are in my stomach and how that feels when they get taken out. And I understood the not get too carried away. I understood the small walks you have to have on a daily basis just to build yourself back up. Like all of that understanding was like really severe. And it was really like telling in my mind that I was kind of looking at it thinking, do you know what, This, this is something that's really difficult. And doing it by myself made it even more difficult because when I'm going out for a walk in the hospital during COVID, like the, the hospital is empty and I'm on a FaceTime to my ma walking up and down corridors. Whereas when I was 16, I had my ma and dad there that I could walk up and down the corridors with and I had someone there that if I needed support, they were there. So I think I had two different kind of ways of thinking of it. And obviously when I was 27, like, to get wheeled into the operating theatre, I was wide awake because during COVID, you weren't allowed to be in many different rooms. So I had to get wheeled straight into the theatre while awake. And when you're laying there and they're putting different pads on you and heart rate monitors and you're looking around and you're just seeing monitors everywhere and you're seeing about 20 odd doctors in the room and you're just thinking, well, there's no backing out now. So like you're, you're kind of like more scared and you understand like the the procedure that's going to happen it looked like a it's going to be a massive procedure so there was no getting away from it there was no there was no kind of respite at the age of 27 to get away from it and to come away from everything that was going on and I and I had to take in every last bit of information the doctors were telling me whereas when I was 16 the doctors would tell me family everything and I wouldn't get told the thing so I didn't know anything I only just knew I'm okay that's all I needed to know Whereas at 27, I was getting told the tablets to take, what they're for, everything that has happened to me, the recovery process, what could go wrong, what might go right. Like all of these different things that are just embedded into my head that, as I say, it it really affected me mentally. And because it was during COVID and because I had a retirement on top of it that I still didn't deal with, it was it was very, very difficult. And I ended up going into depression. when I was 27, I ended up struggling massively with health anxiety. I ended up having panic attacks in the hospital. I ended up having panic attacks laying in my own bed at home. Like I used to, I was struggling to sleep. 
um, I, I, I was afraid to sleep because I, I was afraid I wasn't going to wake up. Like I was having so many thoughts and I was having all these feelings I've never felt before. And when you're getting told from a doctor that Mark, you're depressed, you don't really understand depression until you go through it and say like, look, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't have energy, but I was putting that down to saying, well, I've just had open heart surgery. And it was the same as when I had panic attacks. I thought I was having a heart attack and like my body was losing control of itself. And I couldn't understand why, because I wasn't doing anything. I'm just sitting on a sofa or I'm just laying in bed. And all of them things were going on and the health anxiety, all it did was worry constantly about me health, about what is this? Why is my chest feel like this? Why am I getting pain in my back? Why am I having a headache? Why is this happening to me? Why is that? And, I just couldn't get out out of my head that right now that I'm had the open heart surgery, what's next? What's next that's gonna get me? And that's all that like you say, all of them different emotions and feelings. But the difference was I didn't have football to distract me and take me away that there was no end goal to this. There was no I'm doing this to get back for football. It was yes, I'm doing this for my life. But what was my life without football? And that's what that's what my mind was and I really, really struggled. I don't think you were alone in struggling at that time. Now, obviously, I'm not going to compare, you know, the struggles that any, anyone else had to what you went through. You, uh, you know, in, in normal times, having to go through that kind of an operation for the second time, I think would knock most people back. But combined with what the world at large was going through at the time, you know, everyone was, was isolated and none of us knew when lockdown was going to end none of us even knew you know when the, the the pub was going to be reopened and you know a lot of people struggled i struggled and uh, i was grateful that the company i worked for provided people for us to talk to and i took advantage of that i had to be pushed into it but i was uh it was the the right thing for me at the time i think uh, uh people like richie sadler have made those kind of conversations a bit more commonplace in Irish society at the moment and we're becoming more aware of the kind of support that is needed for you know young players that, that leave at a young age and the kind of the what they go through and the, the support network that that's needed for them in times like that um for anyone who's listening if you're going through anything like that the the best I can, advice I can give you is try and find someone who will t- you can talk to because they will listen yeah, a hundred percent, and and that's that's what I'm a massive believer in. Like similar, like you say yourselves, I had to get pushed into counselling because I just believe that it can't be anxiety. Like why I'm feeling like this has to be a medical reason, and everything had to be medical. And I never understood how your mind can play tricks on it, how your mind can make you feel, and how your mind can make your body feel as though it's not a hundred percent. And like I I had to get pushed into to counselling and. I remember when I when I began counselling, like the very first session that I had, I'm sitting there talking and I'm just explaining the operation and I'm explaining everything and that was all fine. And the counsellor kind of stopped me and basically said, Mark, do you understand what you're speaking about right now? And I said, and like I just replied as normal and said, well, yeah, I do understand it. Like I'm just telling you my operation. And she said, well, you're speaking about well, like it's a day-to-day normal procedure that you've just had. She said, you're not giving it the time of day to actually understand that you're, you're, you're being really hard on yourself at the moment. Like you're, You've gone through so much trauma. And 
when I started to realise it like that way and I started to give myself a little bit more leeway and a little bit more credit and a little bit more understanding to the situation, like I say, it was it was difficult, but counselling probably was the best thing that I could have ever done because the moments I actually sat and spoke about myself and spoke about how I was feeling, like I would literally burst into tears and I never understood why. I would literally sit there with the counsellor and all of this was over FaceTime as well during COVID, but I'd sit talking with the counsellor and for the moment of speaking about myself and Martha, how did that make you feel and what do you think about this or give me a different perspective, I would just burst into tears because I felt as though I was broken. I felt as though this shouldn't be me. I'm a, I was, I'm an ex-footballer who was a captain of a team who felt as though I was a leader on a pitch, who felt as though I'm this big, tough, strong centre-back and now I'm sitting here and I can't control a panic attack. I can't breathe properly. I'm worrying about my health 24-7. Life isn't normal. And I'm sitting here crying on FaceTime. And I just could never get my head around that. And I think I was being really hard on myself. And I think that's like the big aim of everything is that a lot of people could be hard on themselves thinking that they don't need it and nobody needs it. But I'm a big advocate in thinking even if it's sitting down just for the sake of a chat, it's another person's perspective that gives you a different perspective of seeing things that just opens your mind to a different way of thinking, which then kind of breaks that chain of being inside your own head. And that's something that it did for me, that the counselling got me so far, and I knew that I I was going to have to do a lot more talking, but allowed me to be comfortable about speaking about the really dark times and the really down times. And like you say, it's... It's not something, and I'm always saying I'm not somebody that that is any different to anybody else. My circumstance is different to loads of people, and just like somebody else's circumstance is different. But I always, I'm a big believer that everybody fee, everybody's feelings are exactly the same. And when everybody's feelings are exactly the same, there's no reason why somebody can't speak to you about a certain situation. Just because mine was open heart surgery, it doesn't make their feelings any less valid. So it's the fact of opening up those channels to speak a lot more is something I'm a massive believer in because I know how much it helped me. For me, the hardest part was just just even that first sentence. And once you kind of get it out, it kind of gets easier to talk about and easier to explain. And whatever feedback, you know, the feedback that I got from the people that I spoke to, I had not get through lockdown, basically, and which was, you know, yeah, it was a horrible experience for for everyone was your your situation was you know a hundred times worse on top of that having to go through uh life-changing surgery for the second time yeah and that but that, that was all that was always the thing though it was it was something where when 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 i started doing counseling and when i started speaking so much more about it like i wanted to make myself feel comfortable about it i wanted to make myself because any time i used to bring up the issues of six when i was 16 and and the issues of when i was 27 and the retirement from football it all just overwhelmed me constantly and i never realized how much i kept quiet through my career from 16 to 27 i never understood how much i just kept quiet about it. i never spoke to anybody because in your career and in my career it's like you don't want anybody to judge you for having a heart issue. You don't want anybody to like feel and sympathy for you because you wanted to be treated normal. But you also didn't want to be judged and not chosen or signed by a team because you've got a heart issue. You wanted to be as normal as possible. 
So if anybody ever asked me about my heart, I'd turn around and say, yeah, I'm fine, I'm okay. And then that would be the end of the conversation. I wouldn't sit and speak about the thoughts I was having about it or some sleepless nights I would have about it, thinking I could go out and play tomorrow and I might collapse on the pitch. But they they thoughts I, I would have on a Monday to Friday. But then when a Saturday came, and when a Saturday came around, once I crossed the white line, like my mind just went to ease, my body just went relaxed, and I always, I always know that that I knew it was a mental, a mental challenge that I struggled with because when I was playing for the ten years that I played, it was like nothing felt like could, like I, I felt like I couldn't be touched. I felt physically strong, healthy, and I felt like I was safe. Whereas I'm probably more safer now than I've ever been. But I feel so much more vulnerable because I have nothing to distract me. Whereas me speaking openly now about my life, about the ups and downs. Like I say, the book that I've written is not just a footballing book. It's a book that anybody could pick up and relate to for certain situations in their life. And it's just through the eyes of my career and things that I've dealt with. But it's kind of like a bigger message to kind of say... I was able to try and make something of myself by not giving up and by seeking that help or listening to other people or speaking openly about things that if other people in your day-to-day life to businesses to anybody can also look at it in a sense of going, well, do you know what? If that's something that he's gone through and was able to make it back from, well, then I can overcome that. Or somebody who, like I've had plenty of people that have been in touch with me since that have mentioned their own heart issues and hearing me speaking openly about it validates it for them to make them feel more relaxed about it because they're thinking, well, he knows what he, like there's somebody out there who knows what I'm actually going through or what I've gone through. And it's just something that has given me that purpose again. It's given me that purpose that football gave me that I feel as though I've gone through all of these things in my life and I've gone through it all head on that maybe the next step in my life now is to try and transfer that message of things that I've gone through to try and help somebody else feel comfortable who's probably not brave enough or feel comfortable enough to speak openly about it. That's maybe that's the that's the best thing that's come out of of your experience. And I think for anyone who's gone through something similar to that, you know, that they help whoever's coming behind them, whoever's going through the same the same situation that's you know you can you can tell them you know your experience and show them that you know this isn't this this isn't the end you know this this won't end your career you can still live a long and happy life after this operation you can still play football you can still become you know a legend at at a club this isn't going to define you yeah and 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 that's and that's like as i said and that's that's like anybody in life like it's literally Whatever situation that you come up against, no matter how severe and no matter how minor it might be, but it's the fact of saying it just it will never define you if you're not willing to give up on yourself and you're not willing to give in on something you're pursuing or you're not willing to give in on a path you've chosen to take, then there are opportunities and there will be times that I will all come back around and that's why I always say that I want to try and be that example for people. An example for younger footballers, example for people on the day-to-day life that we all have dealt with these different things and we all go through the same emotions that in, in the grander scheme of things, not giving up on yourself and 
I've even taken from it before that you think doing the likes of a counselling is something that you're defeated. It's like you feel like that I shouldn't be doing counselling. You feel as though I've given in to all these bad thoughts because I'm not able to do it by myself. But I've actually realised that doing the likes of counselling and doing different aspects like that is actually the first step of you helping yourself. Like the actual acceptance of accepting help from somebody else to make yourself feel better, to make yourself on that next step. And that's why there are support networks out there. So I also am someone that, like I say, I just don't think that giving up is is an option that if you are wanting to pursue some something, you are wanting to go after something, if that is in football or if that's in a day-to-day life, well, then the fact of not giving in is something that anybody can achieve because I've always said it, that if a lad from Dublin, like myself, moved the way at 15 and had these things thrown at me and given to me and happened to me and I was still trying to be able to make some sort of success out of my life, then... I always look at it and say anybody can because I'm nothing different to what anybody is. You can all learn something from that. I mean, uh, do you want to bring it back to football for a little bit? Because that was yeah. a bit heavy. Yeah, no, that's grand. <laughs> so after, you know, after your first operation in November of 2009, you go through the rehabilitation and you recover enough to the point where you're able to sit on the bench for Derby's final game of the season um, against... Cardiff, what was it like walking out in the stadium in Pride Park seven months after the operation? Were you thinking everything's going to be okay? or were you just, How were you taking the occasion, I think is what I'm trying to say. Do you know what? Like It was only, like I'd say, a week or two previous to that I played my first game. Well, a couple of weeks before that, I played my first game um, for the academy against Manchester United on, on MUTV and it was the first time my family had a chance to watch me play since the operation and they were probably more nervous than me because I was just excited to get back on a pitch. And I've always said it, whether it was the academy reserves force team, once I was back on a pitch, I always had it in me. I had it in my mind that I'm back. Like that was all that mattered to me. And to make it onto the to bench for the last day of the season, like just felt like a massive achievement for myself. It, it made me feel right. I'm over the worst now. Now it's concentrate on football now it's I'm back on the pitch I'm back playing again and everything's behind me so that was a massive moment for me to give me that kind of chance to to put it to bed a little bit and say right I'm over that part of my life even though it was only seven months previous but I was able to kind of put it to one side and say now I can just concentrate on my football and get back to what I did the following season or the previous season when I was making my debut and like I say, it was it was a massive a massive moment for me, and I loved every minute of it because I felt as though I'm 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 back doing what I love. It was a little coincidental that that was actually Jeff Hendricks' first involvement with the Derby first team as well. He was beside you on the subs bench, so it was a uh, a big moment I think for Irish football as well to have you know promising youth players on the bench for a you know a big championship club. No, no, definitely it, it was. It was like as you say, Jeff Hendricks first time on, on a on a bench and he I think Ryan Connolly made his debut on that same weekend. And like to have us there and as you say, I got to share a changing room and it was like the 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 start of something great obviously for himself. And it was the start of something for me just as much even though I got the debut the season previous. 
it it, it felt like this is the start now. This is the beginning of something to to progress with. And like you say, when you have somebody around you like like himself that we basically grew up together in the same league. We've roomed together for for St Kevin's. We played with each other in the DDSL side. We played with each other for the Young Ireland squads and. As you say, now you're in your club and you're and and you're in club football and you've got that same person next to you. Uh, it, it it was it was it was brilliant. It was a, it was a massive moment. I think you know the next season kicks off, and unfortunately, you you get for me what is one of the worst injuries in professional sport, not just in football, which is a torn ACL. That was December 2011, and it just happened in training. It wasn't part of a game. It wasn't. You know, a, a, a bad tackle or anything. For most players, when they get that diagnosis, it means a year out of the game. I mean, you'd already spent, uh, seven months recuperating from the, the operation. Can, you know, to get your condition, uh, back to the stage where you can play professional football again and then to have it taken away. You know, we talked a little about the, the psychological impact of, uh, of the diagnosis. Is it, you know, was it something similar when you got the diagnosis for your knee? I mean, were you thinking, how am I going to get through this again? Yeah, but again, I've, I've also said for a long time that open heart surgery molded my career. It made me more resilient. It made me more focused because I always based it on saying, if I can get back from open heart surgery, I can get back from an ACL. And anything that went on in my career, that that's what I always based it around. If I can get back from an ACL and that, I can get back from something else. So again, my mindset like flipped to at the beginning when I when it first happened, and because it happened in training, and I never knew what an ACL was at the time, I I didn't really understand it. And then when I got told it was like my season finished, like again I felt as though like my world came crumbling down. And why did this have to happen to me? And like I went through all of those same emotions, but because my career potentially was on a time scale after the previous after the open heart surgery, that it probably affected me a little bit more because I, I I had that eagerness of thinking right I need to get this done I need to get back playing, but I also knew it was something that if I can get back from one thing I can definitely get back from this so I never had a doubt in my mind that I'd like struggle with this. I struggled with it more physically, I'd say, because I wasn't able to train and I'm in every day watching the lads training and different things. But mentally, I was I was already in a strong position to, to deal with it and cope with it. I don't think too many of us knew what the ACL was until it started affecting high-profile players. I think maybe it was Roy Keane or Alan Shear were probably the first players that I can remember where... When they tore their ACL, it wasn't described as a knee injury. It was described as an ACL tear. And then, you know, there was newspaper articles about what exactly what the injury is and what it means and how long it takes to recover. I mean, something similar to that is none of us really knew what a metatarsal was until David Beckham broke his before the, the World Cup in 2002. And, you know, again, before that, it would have been described as a bone break in your foot. But because of Beckham's stature in the game and everybody, you know, everybody after that knew what uh, a metatarsal was and every player that's, that's damaged the bone since then, that's exactly how it's been described. So, you know, I go through rehabilitation again after the ACL and, you know, you return to the Derby first team 
in October 2012. But the manager, uh, Nigel Clough, brought you to was in charge of Derby when you arrived, giving you your debut. You know, you lasted for six months after that before being replaced first by Darren Wassell and then permanently by uh, by Steve McLaren. Having Clough uh, at, at the club for so long and, you know, being there for you when you'd gone through so much at that time, how did you feel after he was removed as, uh, as manager? Do you know what? It was tough because I've always held him high in regard that if it wasn't for him, I potentially wouldn't have had a football career because he showed a lot of faith in me, giving me a three and a half year deal when I've had the open heart surgery and he get and I, I got another deal on top of that when I had the ACL. So it was something that he showed a lot of faith in me and a lot of trust in me and it was it was quite difficult because I never had that before where it was it was the first ever time I had a change of manager. It was the first ever time. So it was kind of a bit surreal and like in all fairness, like I didn't know like it, it did hit me because he was someone that yeah, he was my manager, but he actually cared for me on the personal aspect of making sure my family were okay, making sure I was okay through tough times and like I say, it was um it was it was a difficult news to take but again in football it was one of them things that I I learned over over the years that it's just to be expected. Like these things happen but at the time it was my first time ever experiencing it and I didn't really know how to deal with it. Like I, I actually I was gutted that he left. Yeah, it is that old saying, you know, there's three three certainties in life, death taxes and football managers will be sacked. <laughs> uh but you've you know, you've obviously kept in touch with him since then and you know, he's written the foreword for the book. Um so you know, what was it like when you contacted him to, to do that for you? Yeah, like when when I spoke with him to, to do it like and like I've stayed in touch with him over the years and he stayed in touch with me, making sure I'm okay and making sure like how everything's gone. And like you say, you you can't buy that in football much anymore. Like you don't have that kind of loyalty towards people and He's like I say, he's he's one of those very few managers that that if you do right by him, he will try and make sure that that everything goes right for yourself. And it's been he's always someone that even still to this day I would still call him Gaffer. I would still call him Gaffer because I just see him as my manager. And it's it's something where when I when when I got in contact with him to do the forward, he was more than happy to do it. He was delighted to do it. He was um thankful for it and he was he was actually thankful that I wanted him to be part of my book and someone like that like and who saves me career who gave me a career someone who helped me a lot um on and off the field like I say there, there wasn't a better man to do that and I owe a lot to him. Uh, did you ever meet his father? No never I, I, ne- I never I never met his dad but when I've seen like YouTube clips of his dad or I've seen the movie that was on the Damned United mm. um, I see a lot of similar characteristics between the two of them I think I was only really getting into football when his father was coming to the end of his career but still the way that people still talk about him in the game 30 years after he retired as a, as a manager just like goes to, to show the, the character that he was so Steve McLaren takes over as Derby County. You know, he's got this great reputation as a as a coach and as a, a player's coach. But, you know, it didn't really seem like he wanted you as part of his team 
Um, so you actually ended up going out on loan to Motherwell. People talk a lot about like Scotland is two teams and the rest, but you know what was the biggest difference for you between like the championship and uh, and Scottish football? Again, you you can say that it is two teams and the rest because there is a massive like difference in attendance and finances up there. But I think the only way I was able to describe Scottish football would say. Like it would be League One, League Two, Championship, and potentially you could say lower league, Premier League. That is all mixed into one um, league. So like you're you're gonna have your like lower league sides in like your League Two, League One sides that are there for the the toughness, the fight, the the kind of hard graft, and then you get your more experienced, better sides. That could be a League One to Championship sides, and then you get your Celtics, your Rangers, and stuff like that. That potentially could be Premier League or, or higher Championship. So there was a there was a massive mixture, and there's a lot of talent up there. So you you do think to yourself, like when you go up there, and I do believe that a lot of people down talk the the Scottish League, and there's so many good teams up there, and there's so much, there's so many talented players up there that. I think it gets overlooked a lot of the times because of how Celtic are and how Rangers are and how big of the names that they are that the other teams do get overlooked. But there's a, it's a very, very tough league and it was one that was a, a great experience for me. Motherwell didn't really have a great season that year, unfortunately. They ended up in the, the relegation playoffs against Rangers who had finished, who like, you know, they'd been relegated down to Scottish League 2 um, and had charged up through the divisions and were expected to go straight up out of the championship, but actually finished third in the table. You know, Motherwell had actually had a pretty good end to the season, you know, got off the bottom of the table and it, they only lost four games since the end of February um, and possibly were favourites going into that. Now, I, I know you weren't involved in the two games, but were you able to attend the two playoff games? Yeah, no, I, I attended the two playoff games. Um and like I was good that I couldn't play because I ended up picking up an illness um, at the end of the season, so I was struggling with that. But I got to the, I got to attend the games, and again, you see you see the massive support that Rangers have and and different things. But to be the to, to be part of the team and to be part of the side and different things that was able to put a stop to that. Like I get Motherwell didn't have the best of seasons that season, but. It was, it was like I say, I was, I was still only twenty, twenty-one. I was still like a young player learning a trade, so it was, um, it was, it was a very, very good experience. And to see the atmosphere and to see what it was like and the the celebrations after, like it, it was, it felt good being part of something like that. That, like we we saved ourselves from relegation. Like it was something that I never knew it was going to become a trend in my career later down the line, but. It was something that, um, yeah, it was it was it was amazing to be part of, and that day especially was was a special day for Motherwell. Yeah, that game might have you know been a bit of a foreshadowing for your what's what happened for you in future as at Newport County, um, but we we'll, we'll get to that. I mean, when you go back to Derby, then you know Steve McLaren has said that he's, he's, he doesn't see you as part of his team, so you go to to Luton Town, who were in League Two at the time, and. You know, obviously playing Premier League football uh, now. You know, this is the start of the the 2015-16 season. Was there any sense at the time that they were seven years away from playing in the the top division? There was a slight sense of it. Um, I think 
Luton as a team and I think Luton as a club, like they've got a massive fan base. They've got amazing fans, but they've got high expectations of that team. Like, and they still always held that team in high regard and they wanted the most and best for that team. So I do believe that, like the fans always believed that they were a higher, higher end club and they've got the fan base for it 100%. So I think to be at that beginning, um, to where John still brought in, he brought in 12, 14 different players. Um, and, and, and to be part of that was, was brilliant. But again, I think if I'm to look at my career in a whole, I do believe that Luton was probably my worst difficult time on and off the field that I've ever had. As part of your time at Luton, you went out on loan uh, to Southport twice where, you know, you were working with Dino, Dino, is Mamaria. Working with him was eventually what led to your move to Newport, where he was the assistant to Graham Wesley at the time. You know, moving to to Newport, uh, who were they were bottom of the table at the time, and they stayed at the bottom of the table until the beginning of March. And you know, Graham Wesley was sacked. You know, when you're facing relegation like that, and it's your livelihood is on the line. I mean, you know, how hard is that for a player? Yeah, no, it it, it is very hard. Like because when when you are facing that, and like you say, it's your hopes, your dreams, it's your passion, and that's all like kind of on the line for not knowing what's going to happen in your future and everything's so uncertain. Like, it, it it is quite difficult, but, like, I'm always, I'm always someone that was always, like, honest with myself and I, like, I was never too proud to go down and play for Southport being in the conference. I was never too proud to kind of say, oh, I'm too good for that level. I always put it to myself saying, I've moved away from Ireland and I've, don't and like I've moved away from Ireland and do what I do to play football. So no matter the standard, no matter where it is or what it is, if they're willing to allow me play football, well then I'm going there to play football and that's all that matters to me. So the fact of when I went to Southport, don't get me wrong, it's not something that I wanted to do or felt as though it was going to be great, but it was something that actually it, like it, it propelled me forward again. Like it got me in touch with a manager that, like it again, became assistant manager at, at Newport, and that's how I ended up ended up at, at Newport. But it is difficult to to kind of comprehend that it's nothing to do with an injury. It's nothing to do with medical. It's nothing to do with anything. And when your career hands in the balance, and there's nothing you can do about it other than look for the best or the only option that you've got. You, you've got to take it and, and in my opinion is you've got to just jump at every last opportunity to play football because the only way you get noticed is by playing games not by sitting around and doing nothing about it so like I say on one hand it is like devastating that you, you're not getting opportunities and you don't want to and you're not wanted at a club but on the other hand if you get given that opportunity to go play no matter where it is well, then you go, you go take it because playing is what puts the smile on your face and why you're in the game. Mike Flynn was promoted to manager and he'd been part of the setup at Newport. So, you know, he knew the club very well. And, you know, he turned things around. You know, the club went on to lose only four more games until the last game of the season. But unfortunately, two of those were in the last four games of the season against Plymouth and Carlisle, which led to the final game of the season against Notts County. So because of the way the fixtures are worked out, uh, Newport were at home needing a win. They go 1-0 up 
and suddenly uh, North County equalise and Newport are facing relegation. So you go up front um, and you hadn't scored in two years. So was that a decision by the manager or was it something that you said, well, you know, someone has to do it, so it it may as well be me? (laughs) Yeah, well, like in all fairness, it was only the week previous to that when we played Carlisle. Um, it was coming to the final moments of the game and again the manager put me up front it, and I think it was just to win a flick on cause a bit of disruption and, and be that person that bit of a presence to try and flick a ball on or, or be a bit physical up there like there wasn't any kind of aspect or promise on me to maybe score a goal so when it happened on the last day of the season it was the kind of same protocol but it was only on the Friday the day before the game I scored exactly the same goal in training and everybody was like kind of having a laugh about it saying, look, you've wasted your opportunity. Why can't you like save that for tomorrow? And I said, well, that's me finished now. I, I, I'll never do that again. And then when the game came, I remember I looked over to the sideline and Wayne Hatswell, the assistant, and Michael Flynn, they were both standing there on the side and I shouted over, let me go up front. And Michael Flynn said, no. But Wayne Hatswell said, yeah, go on, just go. So I remember like I just jogged up front. And even when I've watched the goal back, the ball goes over my head one way. And then I watch it go back the other way. And then it goes back over me again. And I'm just standing in the middle of it looking. And then when the ball gets played out wide, again, David Poipe, who was out wide, gets to put it into the box. It gets a flick on it. It lands on my chest. And I volleyed it in bottom corner. And it was, it, it was honestly, it was probably one of the the best moments that I've I've ever experienced. Like, I've never scored a goal in the English League. It was my very first goal. Like, I, I knew I was getting a contract by the end of that game. I knew, like, there was a lot riding on that game for me. And obviously, because of the bad times that I had at Luton the, the year previous to that, it just felt as though everything came to me to have that one moment in football where you've felt as though right I've achieved something like this is that one moment like and I always I always bring it back to just similar to Aguero when he scores in the last minute to win the Premier League it's like when Robbie Brady scored for Ireland against Italy to qualify like to qualify through to the knockouts the knockout side of of the Euros like those moments that people always remember I always thought to myself I'd love to have one of them and the fact that I got to achieve that like literally just it, it felt amazing I was actually behind the goal when Robbie Brady scored that was unnatural actually all I remember about it was the ball coming down and I was thinking it's too close to the centre half and then I was like actually it's a bit far out and I was like oh, the keeper oh, the keeper will get to it and then Brady just because of where we I was right behind the goal and just see him ploughing through the two centre halves to head yeah. it in and there was a second like not even a second a microsecond where we all went was that actually a goal? And then yeah. ref blew, and then it was just anarchy, and I almost strangled the person in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I would, I would encourage everyone listening to look up Mark's goal on YouTube, if only for the the beard that he's sporting. Which um, <laughs> had you, did you start growing after? You know, it was three years since your previous goal. Like, had you started growing it after that? No, I, do you know what? I started growing it from the January till the end of that season. Because I was living in a hotel when I came down to to Newport, so I wasn't actually staying anywhere near the town centre. And I always like as the games were getting better and as we were winning and we were on a bit of a roll, I kind of came up with the idea of saying I'm not going to shave it until we we stay up from relegation. 
So obviously, if if we had got relegated, the beard would be down to my knees now. So I knew I had to do something about the beard. But no, it was like a little silly superstition that I had going that I just kept everything exactly the same until the final day of the season. And, and once the goal went in, that Sunday, I've never felt so happy going for a haircut. <laughs> Uh, do people still mention the goal to you? Till this day, like everybody still mentions it. Like even when I'm in the stadium, like there's a section of the fans that all chant hero at me. Like they 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 call the sixth of May Mark O'Brien Day down in Newport because of that goal. So like it is always still remembered. But the significance of the goal, I never really understood until later of 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 me being here longer of under, understanding like what it actually meant. Like. They they basically said like if the club had been relegated, the finances wouldn't have been there. The club could have went into administration. The club could have just went completely bust. They didn't have the facilities. They didn't have anything. People were going to lose jobs because they wouldn't be able to fund them. So there was so much more to that goal that I ever knew. And the fact of knowing that because of that goal, that things like that were able to happen for people to keep jobs and the club to still be here. Like it, it, it just makes it all that bit more special. Yeah, it's a great club as well, Newport, a great community club. Maybe it feels like there's a bit less and less of those all the time in the game. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. It's a, it's a very kind of fan-driven club, and everybody's in it together. And that's what's brilliant about Newport is that, like, when you're here, you know you're part of something. You know you're part of. It, it is like a a family club where everybody is in it together and. Like, nobody wants to come to Newport. Nobody wants to play against Newport. And you kind of thrive on that kind of underdog story. Like, Newport are always seen as underdogs, and it brings the best out of you. And, 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 and like you say, the fans drive the place. The atmosphere down in our stadium does be, does be electric uh, most weekends. And, like I say, it, it is something where you do have to kind of create your own success here, but you feel more rewarding that you do have to create it for yourself here. That's not given to you by finances. Yeah, and like the, that goal did lead to, to good things for Newport for the next two seasons. You know, with, with Mike Flynn in charge, he was finished 11th in the following season and then 7th in 2018-2019 season, where you actually scored twice. Both of them came in the same game. I mean, for someone who really scored at all, what was it like to score twice in the same game? Yeah, like, I, I don't know how the second one got given to me, in all fairness, because it deflected off me and went in bottom corner. So I just claimed it off, off, like, straight to the referee. But it was kind of like that That game in itself was kind of like a make-or-break game. We had a game in hand running in towards the end of the season. And if we win that game in hand, we were going to be in the playoffs. Like, we, we like got ourselves into a playoff position. So to play in that game and then to score two goals in it, like, again... It was it was like two more significant goals that were needed. Those two goals got us into the playoffs. So it was kind of like surreal again. And then you hear all the Newport fans chanting, he only scores in the big games kind of thing. And he, and he scores when he wants and all these different things. But like you say, it's there are all these moments that I was able to create for myself. And I felt as though I was finally back at a club that felt like home ever since the Derby exit. Like, it was the first club in, in my career after that that felt like, right, I feel at home here. Like, I feel as though this is this is my club. You know, the two clubs, I think, have a lot in common in that respect. Um, yeah, like, Derby was, Derby was a club that was that a very fan-driven and a very home 
orientated, family orientated kind of club and, and Newport is exactly the same and you feel the support, you feel you feel as though that like you're you're doing it for the greater good, you're doing it for the community, you're not just doing it for your own career and it's not a selfish thing. When you're here it's one in, we're all in kinda of, kind of mentality and, and you can't really beat that and like you say it's there's not many of that around the football anymore. Yeah, and I think that's uh something maybe needs to be done about that. Now the following season, the twenty nineteen, twenty twenty season, you know, obviously it ended prematurely due to COVID. The League One and League Two seasons finished uh when all games were suspended at the end of March. And then it was during COVID where you went for the, the, the second of your two surgeries. Like when did you decide you were gonna retire after that? When I found out my valve was leaking, the decision was made for me there and then. I knew I needed to retire from football because when I was 16, as I say, I, I made that choice to myself that the first operation was for football and the next operation is for my life. So I made that decision there and then that I'm retiring from football. Um, again, broke down into tears. Like I really, really struggled with that one. But it was it was at that moment that I realised that like football's coming to an end and it wasn't easy. I remember I found Mike Flynn um, when I when I found out the news of me valve leaking and he answered the phone and he was speaking to me and the first thing he was like, Alright, so how's everything going? How's how's how have you been through COVID? And I was like, Yeah, and no, I said, I've got something to tell you and he goes, Go on, tell me, break the news to me and I goes, I, I need to retire and then the conversation just went flat, just went completely quiet. And he said, Alright then, no problem. I'll speak to you in a bit and then that was it. And like to this day, like I remember I spoke to him about it and he said he put down the phone and, and he said that he actually got emotional and got upset because he said he started to cry at the fact that one, he wasn't going to obviously have me as a player anymore and two, the fact of like we were close and he said he just felt emotional for me, he felt sad for me and stuff like that and like you say, you don't come across many people like that in football, like I was lucky enough that I did get to come across a couple of people like that, like as managers, like with the likes of a Stuart McCall or the likes of a Noiser Clough and Mike Flynn now as well, like that. They actually like liked me or they actually treated me as a human, like they actually had that connection and they had that feel towards it, like you felt as though, you know what, like you could speak to them about anything, so like to know that like he kind of felt that emotion from me just as much like it was a difficult conversation to have but like you say it was just it it, it was devastating following the operation and the recovery and the the rehabilitation you know we mentioned earlier about your your current position as player care with with Newport how did that come about well it was literally like Newport and and obviously the manager uh, Michael Flynn at the time and they just allowed me come back into football after the operation like I just I asked can I come in to watch training and I asked can I still be around the building and they were like come in make sure you come in make sure you show your face and all these different things so I I, I kept going in each day and then I got given a staff tracksuit because I wasn't a player anymore and like from that I just started developing like just being in and around the building keeping me face there and enjoying just keep coming in and like I say, it was the following season after that that they started to try and come up with a role. They started saying, OK, you can do an ambassadorial role. You can be the ambassador of Newport because of of every, like all the times that you've spent here and, and different things. And 
it was it was kind of like right you can kind of help out and I was trying to figure out if I wanted to do coaching if I wanted to do different different elements of of being in the football club and then the manager James Robbery came in and he came up with the idea of a player care role which is something where I didn't really know what it entailed but I think I was already doing that without having a job title I was there to help players I was there to talk with the players I was there to gain the trust of the players I was there to kind of pick people up when they were already down or if they didn't do too well on a Saturday to kind of be the eyes and ears for myself to try and help people and the stronger I start feeling in myself and in the rehab I was doing and in everything after the operation the more I was able to help other people and the more that I've done that the better I start feeling so like I said, it was it was all just like one thing that led to another. I, I, I was I was kind of like falling into these positions. It wasn't something that I I kind of thought that's definitely what I want to do because I ended up I I still do a bit of commentary for for BBC Wales. I I've gone out and done some um, keynote talks for for colleges on 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 adversity and different things. So there's so many different kind of things that I was doing, but this one for football just felt as though it fitted me perfect because of everything that I've gone through from great times to not so great times that I was able to relate to so many more people and so many more footballers on any level they were feeling. I know I felt at some stage in my career, so it kind of just fitted me perfect. Was it during this that you decided to write the book? Yeah, it it, it was like, it was a year ago. Um, my dad used to say it to me for years. He used to always say, Mark, you should write a book. And I used to always laugh thinking like nobody would want to listen to my life like why? Why should I write a book like no one will ever listen to it? And he used to always say to me, look, someone like yourself have gone through so much in 10 years that someone won't go through in their life. Like you, like talking about it, you might as well write a book. So we always laughed about it. But then somebody got in touch with me a year ago and like the, the company Morgan Lawrence, they got in touch with me and they basically said to me, look at Mark, like we, we've heard your story and we want to, you want to like help you with a book would you be up for it so I said yeah and it came about because I felt as though the more I spoke about my life through interviews and different things I was doing and the response I was getting off people saying Mark your life your story can help so many people I thought well you know what I want to put it all out there in a book which was difficult to do it was scary to do because I felt as though like I was giving giving part of myself away that there's so much now that like everybody would know about me that all you have to do is read the book and find out basically everything that I've been through. But it was something that once I got given the opportunity, I just said, yeah. And I thought, well, do you know what? I want this book to try and help so many people. I want people to have an insight into my life that could potentially help or save somebody else's or change somebody else's life. And that's, the impact I wanted I want to have on people and with the response that I've had from it all from interviews that I've done and the response that I've had since the book has been out from people who have read it like it, it is getting that reaction and and as I said I, I've I've really taken massive like uh, pride and and I am proud of everything that like the, the book is doing for people because as I said that that new kind of purpose for myself now is that I wanted to help people. I want my life story to help people. So the more I want it out there and the more I want to speak about it, the more I want people to actually pick up and read because I feel as though it is something that 
can can help and affect and maybe give someone that bit of confidence that they need just by reading it. Um, I have my copy ordered. I'm still waiting on the delivery. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to to finishing it. I want to thank Mark. That was that was absolutely fantastic. I want to thank you for agreeing to come on the show to talk about your life. The book, The Game of Two Hearts, is available now from uh, Morgan Lawrence. We'll include a link in the description. I would encourage every single one of our listeners to to order a copy. And if you can, get down to to Newport so you can chant at Mark just so much of a legend he is. Mark, <laughs> uh, thank you again for coming on. No, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem at all. We'll be back to our normal show, reviewing and discussing the ongoing topics in Irish football. I look forward to talking to you soon. Take care, everyone. All the best.